seated. Excited to be together this morning and to be in the book of James. That's why you're taking your seats. Find, whether you brought a Bible, you got an app, whatever it is, find the book of James. And we've been working our way verse by verse through this book. That's actually one of the things, uh, if you attend with us long enough, you'll kind of see that's our bread and butter, just preaching through books of the Bible. Letting God's Word set the agenda and letting God's Word form us because we believe that a whole Bible makes a whole Christian, right? Rather than picking and choosing things, we let the whole Bible form us as God's people. And last week, we had sort of jumped out of our order we were going through in the book of James for Compassion Sunday. But now we're going to jump back. James chapter 1, we're going to begin reading in verse 5. And read through to verse 11. James chapter 1, verse 5 through verse 11. The Word of God says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, not with doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. But the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes." so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is the word of God. So James has started this letter, and he's written this letter sort of give us a a basic guide to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. That's why we've called the series ABC Discipleship. This is the basics of following Jesus. And he opened his letter with a word to sufferers. With a word to a people in trial, he opened verse 1 saying that he wrote this to the 12 tribes in dispersion. These are believers who were both ethnically Jewish, majority-wise, but also members of the true Israel of God. And they were outside of their homeland. They had been forced out of the home that they knew, but also he's speaking of spiritual realities. These are people living in a world that's not their home, truly and fully. Romans 2 says this, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So this is a community of believers who had been circumcised by the Spirit. They were both Jewish outwardly, but they were also Jews inwardly, to use the language of Romans chapter 2. They faced the normal trials that we all do. They had families, they had kids, they had marriages, they had economies to think about, all sorts of things. But these folks also faced very unique trials of persecution. They faced rejection from their fellow Jews, from their own family and friends who rejected them because they had accepted Jesus as the Messiah. They also faced systemic oppression 
from the government. Herod had made it his mission to squash the early Jesus movement. Yet the more they suffered, the more the church increased. And these are the people James is writing this letter to, and he begins with the subject of trials. And he starts by saying that we need to count all our trials as joy. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy. And notice the various kinds. He has in mind big trials, small trials, ordinary trials, and extraordinary trials. All of them are meant to be counted as joy. Why? Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. We saw this a few weeks ago when we looked at this text, that trials produce steadfastness, and when this steadfastness or this patience has had its full effect in us, it produces completeness. And James has in mind here maturity, wholeness, growing up in our faith. That's what trials do, and that's why we can count them all joy. But counting them all joy doesn't make the trial easy and doesn't always make it go away, right? And James offers us wisdom for the road in the trials as we walk by faith. When we are living as disciples, when life gets hard, what do we do between point A and point B? What do we do between the start of the trial and how we see that God is using it to form us? How do we do this? He says that in the midst of the trials, our faith is being tested. So how do we pass the test? Here's the central point that James gives us in verses 5 to 11. James says this, when things get hard, pray. He gives us prayer as one of the means by which we stand firm in the midst of trials, whatever the trial may be. In fact, prayer is one of the big themes in James' letter. Chapter 1, verse 5, we read this moments ago. He says to ask God. To pray for wisdom. In chapter 4, when he was diagnosing the worldliness in this community of faith, he says this, chapter 4, verse 2, You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own Passion. So he says, hey, one of the problems in this community is that many of them lacked prayer. They didn't pray in the midst of what they needed. But he also said that when they did pray, they prayed for their own selfish desires rather than to pray for God's will to be done. And even at the close of the book, chapter 5, verse 13 and 14, he says this, If anyone is suffer, is anyone among you suffering, let him pray. Is anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Then he gives Elijah as an example of prayer for us. Chapter 5, verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and rain, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. 
in trial and out, through big and small, God calls us to pray. The Apostle Paul would write that we are to pray without ceasing. It's just to be the air that we breathe. When things get hard, the invitation is to let us pray. And James chapter 1, verse 5 to 11 is written to teach us about prayer when we're in the midst of trial. How do we pray when life gets hard? Three points. Let's start with the first one. He says first that we are to ask for God's wisdom. He says, ask for God's wisdom. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, and I hope you know that when I first read that, I said, me, what I'm supposed to do? If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Did you notice at the end of verse 4, James says that when patience has its full effect, we're complete lacking nothing. And now he says, hey, if you lack wisdom, if you're not at maturity yet, if God's not done with you, ask Him for wisdom. Ask Him for help. But before we can really think about and understand that, we need to know what wisdom is, don't we? Because sometimes I think we confuse wisdom for intelligence. And there's a lot of very smart people that are not very wise. This is not the time to look around at your neighbor, right? There's a lot of people who know a lot of things and have read a lot of things and maybe even are experts in certain things but are not very wise. Because here's what wisdom is, and this is in your note. Wisdom is God's perspective on our situation. That's what wisdom is. You can't get any smarter or wiser than God. And when we ask for wisdom, we're asking for God's perspective on our situation. We need to notice that he doesn't say ask God to change your circumstances, though that's not always a bad thing to do. But rather, he says pray that God would change you in the view of the trial. To give you something you may not presently have. To give eyes to see how God may use this trial for your maturity and joy and perseverance in the faith. King Solomon famously prayed for wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 3. He'd become king of the land, and God honored his prayer, we read, because he didn't ask for riches or a long life or any of these other big things many asked for, but rather Solomon asked for wisdom. Friends, that's a prayer that if prayed with the right heart, God will answer. Young people don't know what you're doing with your life yet. Sometimes the best thing you can do is just with a sincere heart, with ears open, ready to receive, go, God, give me wisdom. And no, he may not give it to you right away, but it will come. And that's something we could all pray for. But we also got to understand, wisdom doesn't ever come easy. (laughs) Even for Solomon. Wisdom didn't come easy. Because we can't think that when wisdom comes, the trial is going to instantly go away. That rarely ever happens. In fact, wisdom sometimes brings more trials along with it. Solomon prays for wisdom, and then almost immediately God gives him an opportunity to use his wisdom. Don't you love that? It's like when you you pray for patience, and then the drive-through line slows down, right? He gives you an opportunity to use it. And there's this famous case, Solomon prays for wisdom, and then these two women show up to let Solomon 
figure out their conflict. And these two women both claim to be the mother of the same baby, right? These two women show up. One of the women had lost their baby in an accident, so she was claiming that this other baby was hers. And so Solomon's got to figure out, okay, who, who, is, who is the mama to this baby, right? Talk about a trial. They came to Solomon, and Solomon was supposed to sh- sort it out. And I love Solomon's response here. Here's what Solomon does. 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 24. So the women are before him. They've got the baby. Solomon says this, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her child, oh, my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. I love this. One, this is not one of those stories you read about in the kids' ministry books very often. Right? Could you imagine if this was in the little kid's Bible they handed out? Your kid would be terrified, right? But Solomon obviously had no intention to cut the baby in half, right? But he knew that the true mother would yearn and long for the child to be alive, even if the child wasn't hers, while the bitter woman who sought vengeance would, would, would do whatever they could to get vengeance on the other. So God gave Solomon wisdom, and that meant not only giving him perspective, but also gave him insight on how to apply it. God gave Solomon wisdom when he asked, and Solomon even went on to write a number of books of wisdom, right? Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon. And so the invitation is clear to us. If you lack wisdom, ask God. In fact, James goes on to offer an example of God's wisdom applied to one particular set of trials that were going on among these believers. In addition to all the persecution that was going on, there was a division in the church. Imagine that. Christians not getting along, right? Never seen that before, right? And there was a division between the rich and the poor. And the the issue wasn't necessarily money itself, but the issue was that both rich and poor both were experiencing various trials, but the issue is that the rich were showing partiality and exploiting the poor. You can go read about this. If you read James chapter 2 later today, you'll see that the poor were being forced to sit on the floor while the good seats, quote-unquote, were being given to the rich and the powerful. The rich were getting special treatment. You can go read in James chapter 5 that the rich were cheating the poor out of, their, out of their wages. So these believers, the majority of them, were experiencing poverty and partiality. And James offers wisdom to the downtrodden, the exploited, and the segregated. And that's what he does in verse 9. He says, pray for wisdom, and then he shows us an example of wisdom. Verse 9 says this, But the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation. And the rich in its humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he'll fade away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. 
Notice, God's perspective here wasn't necessarily what the people might have wanted to hear. He doesn't say, hey, poor, I want you to go get revenge and start slashing the tires of the rich, right? He also doesn't just turn, turn it aside and push aside their concerns. Rather, he offers them a new perspective on riches. And God's wisdom, God's perspective, is always an eternal perspective. And so here's what he says. He says, hey, to those who are poor, realize that you should boast in your lowly position because all earthly riches will fade away, and if you have Christ, you are rich. <laughs> Remember, nobody can take it with you, and you're going to a place, if you're in Christ, where you have God Himself, and He has a place prepared for you. That's something to boast in. Then he says to the rich, he says, boast in your humiliation because remember, your time is ticking until you're just as poor as everybody else. (laughs) Just keep on ticking because your life's going to go and you won't be able to take the bank account with you. And so notice how he takes this eternal perspective and applies it to their situations. In Christ and in light of eternity, neither rich nor poor are any better than any other. And it was the great equalizer. That's what wisdom often does. And it changes their perspective and was meant to give them joy in the midst of their trials. God's perspective on their trial, maybe even on your trial, is to offer you an eternal perspective. And to let God's word transform how we view the world. Friends, are you in a trial this morning? Ask God to give you wisdom. And he'll give it. Remember, trial may be the experience of poverty or partiality. It may be some big deal, but it also might just be a regular mundane thing. These are trials of various kinds. It could be normal trials of marriage or parenthood. Friends, life is full of various kinds of trial and wisdom is needed for it all. But if we come to God for his perspective, are we ready to receive it? James is going to turn to that, actually. He's going to turn to our readiness to apply God's wisdom. But before he does that, he wants to remind us of something first. Because we're not simply told to ask for God's wisdom. He actually gives us a reason to come and ask God. Look at verse 5 again. Look at this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives graciously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. How do we pray when life gets hard? He says, pray for God's wisdom, but second, pray with God's willingness. Ask with God's willingness. Friends, this is incredibly good news that we can come and ask for wisdom because God is willing to give. And it's important to realize that what you believe about God will directly impact how you approach Him. That theology, I know that's a big boring word to some people, but it really does drive our practice, right? That orthodoxy, right, belief about God will drive orthopraxy, right, practice before God. And so maybe today you haven't come to God to ask for something because you fear He's going to berate you or beat you down. Maybe you think that God's grumpy and doesn't want to give nobody nothing. Maybe you think He's like a parent that you had that looks at you and thinks you should already know that. But this passage presents something different to us about our God. In fact, we notice two things 
about God in this passage. First, he reminds us that God gives wisdom freely with a singular focus. God gives wisdom freely with a singular purpose. God isn't like the double-minded man that he's going to talk about in a few verses. He gives without partiality and without division. He gives freely and graciously. God knows we need wisdom and He stands ready to give it. God is a gracious giver. And James actually goes on to say this. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is the giver and the source of all wisdom because God is the source of all truth. And we're told to ask Him and to ask in faith with a willing heart. He encourages us. Some Eastern religions will teach you that wisdoms come with some pilgrimage to some faraway place that none of us can afford to go. Or that wisdom's gotten through self-inflicting harm upon yourself. Or that wisdom comes through just digesting a lot of information. Like Google's actually wise. Right? But wisdom comes through asking God and He will graciously give. And He gives us the singular focus. You're asking yourself, why does God freely give? Because verse 4, He wants to make us complete, lacking in nothing. God will always freely give you wisdom as long as it serves toward your maturity in your faith. God doesn't give you wisdom to puff you up or to satisfy every single curiosity. You who have kids understand this. Your kids ask you a lot of questions that you're not going to give them the answer to right away. They're either not ready for that, or they've asked you why about 25 times, and you're just not, you're just, I don't know why. You know, it's just how it is, right? But God gives wisdom to serve our partiality, to serve our maturity. He isn't even promising that God's going to give you a precise answer to every question you ask. But God's going to offer you Himself in the midst of your trial. And if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who graciously gives it to us. Jesus tells a very similar parable. I love this. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 11. And Jesus said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. That's what I'm going to answer. And the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. In other words, he's like, hey, if you go to your friend's house at midnight and you need something because you didn't plan for this person to come, if you knock on the door or call them enough, they will eventually answer just so you leave them alone, right? And you might think to yourself, but, but, but I thought you said that isn't how God is. Jesus isn't done, right? He continues, verse 9. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. He encourages with these verses a continual asking, a continual knocking, a continual seeking. Then he says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, 
will instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will, the Father, will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See it. He says, we don't come to God as a random friend or neighbor knocking on the door at midnight. We don't come before him as strangers. Friends, hear this. We come as children of God. And parents, you understand, if your child cries out at midnight for need, you're up for whatever they need. You're there when they cry to you. And the Heavenly Father will hear the cry of His children even at midnight, and He will not be bothered at all. Our Heavenly Father does not sleep or slumber. And He's never bothered when we come to Him. So when we ask for wisdom, we come as a child to a Father who is far more loving and gracious than any of us have ever been. He's your perfect Heavenly Father, despite what your earthly father may have been like. If you lack wisdom, ask God who gives generously to all. But that last part is so important. Here's the second thing we learn. God gives wisdom freely without finding fault. Without finding fault. God isn't into the blame game. God isn't into the blame game without finding fault. God doesn't look down on your request for help with his head in his hands. Like, God, this guy again. This is the third time this week. God doesn't think you're stupid. He doesn't think to himself, they should know better. He realizes that we're in need of Him. And let me tell you this. Some of y'all haven't talked to God in a while. You're scared to come before Him because you're worried of being rejected. Maybe you're worried of the lecture, right? Maybe you, maybe you know that you've lived your life and you feel like you need to make up for mistakes you've made. Maybe you're letting past mistakes impede your present relationship with your Maker. Let me offer you an encouragement if that's you. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells a parable about two sons. And really, there's an important lesson with the second older son. But let's talk about the younger son, right? He had a broken relationship with his father. He took his father's inheritance. He rejected a relationship with him. And he squandered all the money on wild living. This was a man who lived foolishly, right? And one day, the man in a pit with no food... The scripture says he came to his senses. He experienced the consequences of his actions, and he came to his senses, and he knew what he needed to do. He's like, I need to call my dad. <laughs> I'm in trouble. And so he goes back home, and he probably works up a speech on his way home, right? He's probably preparing himself for, again, the lecture when he gets home to dad. And he braced for an I told you so, but look what he received. Luke 15, verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Rather than an I told you so, the father said, I love you so. And this is the way that we can approach God for wisdom. Friends, even if you've blown it, the Heavenly Father stands ready to receive you without finding faults. Because God recognizes the best thing you can do is lean on Him for help. 
We always talk about ask the experts. Who's a a bigger expert on all things than the creator and sustainer of it all? And the fault is never found in the one who asks God for wisdom. Rather, the fault's with the one who thinks he has no need for God's wisdom. Think about this. God can help a fool who knows he's a fool and knows he needs wisdom, but God can't really help a fool who thinks he's wise. (laughs) A doctor can help a sick patient who comes in and gets treatment, but the one who's stubborn and thinks he knows it all, the doctor can't help him, right? God will not find fault with you who seek him. So if you lack wisdom today, if you're breathing, (laughs) right? If you need help on the journey of life, ask. He gives freely with a single purpose and without finding fault. We ask for God's wisdom. We ask with God's willingness. And finally, here's the third thing. We ask in God's way. We need to ask in God's way. Look with me at verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Notice what James is saying. He says, I think we're tempted to misunderstand this passage because if you've grown up in church much of your life, you've heard really bad preaching on this particular passage. I guarantee you. Because James isn't teaching that you need to ask God with absolute certainty or else God won't do it. Because let's remember, he's, he's talking about here asking for wisdom. And if you need wisdom, you're not even 100% sure what you need or else you wouldn't be asking for wisdom, right? <laughs> So he's not saying you have to have this 100% absolute mental certainty, like somehow if I just speak it into existence, God's going to do it. It doesn't work that way. I'm sorry, I don't care what the TV preacher told you, it doesn't work that way. You can't speak things into existence, right? He isn't speaking of doubt as uncertainty, but rather he's speaking of doubt as being divided in your affections. In other words... Don't ask for God's perspective, God's wisdom, if you're not going to do what he says. In other words, don't come to me asking for my opinion if you don't want it. It'd be like asking a doctor to, to do, you know, that you're sick and you need his help, but going, you know, if you walk away, he's like, I really know better anyway, and I'm not really going to do anything he asked me to do. James is saying, don't come to God with divided loyalties. And here James is pulling again from the teachings of Jesus. In fact, you'll see throughout the book of James, he relies heavily. The whole book is steeped in the teachings of Jesus, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, but really through all the Gospels. And notice how Jesus often sets up the same contrast between faith and doubt, wisdom and foolishness, but he uses this language of of having divided loyalties. Look at this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. He says wisdom 
is to live by faith in God and his word and to do them. Folly is to hear the word of God, but not to do it, right? To doubt. When we come to God and ask for wisdom, we need to come undivided, ready to actually listen to the wisdom he gives. And James gives us three pictures of what it's like to approach God as a doubter or as a divided person. Three quick pictures as we begin to close. First, he says, to doubt makes us like a storm on the sea. To doubt makes us like a storm on the sea. Verse 6, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. You ever met somebody like this? You ever met someone who jumps wildly from one thing to another? Who goes from one extreme to the other extreme? Someone who's just erratic and does things without thinking? Let me tell you, if that's already the characteristic of somebody, trial usually makes it worse, doesn't it? And ultimately, Jesus says, they're without a foundation. They're like the sand in the winds of a windstorm. If you feel like your life is in flux, like you go from A to Z believing anything you hear, that's what it means to be divided. That's what it means to be a doubter, as James talks about. Rather, God's wisdom will put us in a storm, but never in a storm of uncertainty or unintentionality. Rather, any storm God puts us in with wisdom is meant to lead us to joy and maturity, to lacking nothing. James gives us another picture. Second, to doubt makes us like a man with two souls. Makes us like a man with two souls. Verse 7. Look at this. For that man, the doubter, must not suppose he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man. Someone who doubts who's divided, can't expect to receive anything from the Lord because he says he's double-minded. Literally, he's saying he's double-souled. He's a man with two owners, with two masters. And Jesus says clearly, you can't serve two masters. You can't have two jobs and then both call you in and you not have to pick one over the other, right? Don't be double-souled. James actually repeats this phrase later in James chapter 4. Look at this. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded, you double-souled. It's interesting, it appears that James is one of the first people to use this word in ancient Greek literature, and Christians sort of picked this up and ran with it. So James saw their division and said, I've got to make up a word for it. (laughs) They're double-souled. And here, James is calling believers to stop approaching God as the source of wisdom if he's not actually your source of wisdom. If you're dead set on doing your own thing anyway, don't come to God for counsel, right? If you are going to devote yourself, you have to choose between the world or the word. Someone like that should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Don't be divided like a man on the sea, like a man with two souls. And here's his third picture. To doubt makes us like a man with uneven steps. Uneven steps. Verse 8. He's double-minded, unstable in all his ways. James is going to repeat this over in chapter 3 when he talks about the tongue being a restless evil, having no firm footing, could fall or collapse very quickly, like one lacking balance. Like if you've ever tried to bring in heavy groceries on the ice and you're just sliding everywhere, trying not to drop the milk, right? He said, that's what it's like. 
if you're divided in your affections when you come to God. James is telling us that when we pray, when we come to God in times of trial, when we ask for wisdom, God will not have undivided devotion. He wants those who seek Him to be all in, to come before Him and ask, and to follow when we receive. God doesn't give us wisdom in order for it to be wasted or squandered. Do you like wisdom? Ask God. Do you need wisdom? Seek God's wisdom in His Word. Are you seeking wisdom and believe, or do you believe you know it all? Will you be willing to listen to others when they come to you? James is calling us to be disciples, to be bond servants of Jesus, to be fully devoted to our God and Savior. This is actually how James refers to himself in the very first verse, right? And it's his vision for all of us. And friends, if you need wisdom, Jesus is meant to be your guide. You remember in the 90s, there was this old, people would wear these wristbands. That's a WWJD. What would, right? There's nothing wrong with that necessarily, but we can't really ask ourselves what Jesus would do if we don't know what Jesus actually did, right? So many people like have this sort of mythical idea of what Jesus would look like. I mean, he's basically some like California hippie. What would a hippie do, right? And that's, that's not really the right question to ask, right? We've got to begin with what Jesus did. And we also need to ask ourselves, what did Jesus say? I'm so thankful our worship team led us this morning because we need to think to ourselves, just like we sang in that song, not only what does Jesus say about this issue, but what does Jesus say about me? If I'm blameless and forgiven and holy and I know he says that about me, won't that change the way I live? The decisions I make? Doesn't that begin to clear a path for me as to whether to do A or B or C? Let us ask him, and through prayer and the Bible, God will give us wisdom. The Apostle Paul wrote this, 1 Corinthians 1, 30. And because of him, God the Father, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He says we've got to fully rely on Jesus as the source of our hope the source of our wisdom, the source of our righteousness and salvation, because Jesus himself went through great trial. In fact, he went through the greatest trial of going to the cross after living a sinless life and dying in our place, being buried and rising again on the third day so that any who come through repentance and faith, who say, God, I'm giving up on pursuing this myself. I need you. He will meet them with wisdom and the salvation that they call upon. And the Lord's Supper, which we're going to take this morning, is a reminder, a symbol of that salvation. We eat the bread and we drink the cup, symbolically taking what God has provided and putting it inside of us to consume his promises and to let his wisdom nourish us. So, as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, there's two different groups of people the Lord's Supper is for. First, the Lord's Supper is for all who are following Jesus today, for baptized believers and followers of Jesus. And the invitation stands open as the plates pass, take a cup. Wait, we'll take it together as a church. And usually that's time to reflect on what Jesus has done in his broken body 
in his shed blood, which is what the whole thing stands for. But for others, it stands as a different sort of invitation. If you're today not following Jesus, you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, let the plate pass. Or maybe you're not in a right place with the Lord right now. Let it pass. And use this as an invitation to come to the one that the bread and the juice are meant to point toward. To come to Jesus and seek his eternal wisdom and eternal salvation for your souls. Is anyone without wisdom? Let him ask of God. Let's pray and prepare our hearts this morning. Father in heaven, you have clearly spoken to us to remind us that we do not know it all. We aren't made to know it all. We're not made to be the rulers in the We're not made to know all things and to be the ruler and sustainer of the world. You are. And so today, there's many today that may be in need of wisdom. I know I'm in need of wisdom, and so I'm asking you for it. I lack it. Give it to us, whether it be in our families, in our church, in our jobs, in our life, whatever it is. Give us wisdom. And help us as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, to prepare our hearts, Lord, to be united together as a faith family as we take the bread and the juice together, but also to be reminded of your gospel and your goodness and your love for us in Jesus. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Supper is given to us as a means to remember the grace of God given to us in Jesus. And it stands open to all who are following him by faith. The Apostle Paul wrote about the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's what he said. For I received from the Lord what also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's a second sermon, another reminder for us in physical, tangible form of God's goodness and kindness to us. Before we close our service, I want to introduce you guys to somebody. Gracie, come on up here. So Gracie, last week, uh, made a profession of faith and met Jesus here on Service. Yeah, celebrate. There we go. And she's going through the process of preparing to be baptized uh, very soon, and we'll share more about that in the coming days. But I thought I would encourage you that the Lord is at work here. I'd even encourage y'all to see. I mean, I came here, what, middle of COVID, and I look around, and man, the Lord's at work <laughs> in our church and in this place. So it's good to be together. But I would encourage you to come up, give Gracie a right hand and fellowship and welcome her. And I want you to look out and see your family, your faith family here that loves you. And we're excited to baptize her in the weeks ahead. So thank you for sharing that. You can go be seated for a bit. But no, it's so good to see what the Lord's doing in our church. And I'll close our service today with the benediction, with the blessing. Because remember, we aren't just sent here to worship in a building, but sent out to worship and be witnesses in the world. And so, this blessing from 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit 